turn to the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, and to chapter 16. Luke 16, uh, verses 19 to 31. That's the text for this morning. Welcome uh, to our worship gathering. I hope you, yeah, I hope you've sensed God with you throughout this week. I hope you sense God's presence here among us this morning. And uh, yeah, we want to sort of open ourselves as we come and uh, and read these words of Jesus. Just want to take like a moment and just sort of picture ourselves. You sort of picture yourself just sort of sitting there because what what can happen is we can come into God's presence in this way as we gather, and we can have these barriers built up in our heart and our mind. These barriers that keep us from hearing the truth that God's Spirit would want to speak to us to set us free. And so just take a moment and, um, and just imagine, like in, in your mind, in your heart, whatever barriers they may be, just sort of coming down. And, and you're the one just sort of saying, God, I, I don't want anything to keep me from hearing your word. God, we come to you today with open hands. Open hearts, open minds, open lives. Because we want to be your disciples. We're here, we're sitting at your feet. And we want to hear what you have to say to us. We ask that you would comfort us, that you would confront us, and that you would uh, prepare us to be people who build your kingdom in this world. So we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Well, we are in this season of the church year called Lent. Uh, and we really haven't spent a lot of time talking about Lent this year. We have in the past. Um, Lent is not that thing you pull out of the dryer, like before you put the next load of, uh, you know, laundry in there. Lent is this season of the church that leads us up to the death and resurrection of Jesus, the celebration of Easter Sunday morning. Uh, Easter is so important. Resurrection Sunday is so important in the life of the church that we don't just like, hey, it's Resurrection Sunday. We actually, there's this long on-ramp to celebrate it. There's a time of preparation. Lent has been, for the church, for thousands of years, has been the season of examining our hearts, examining what's happening inside of us, and allowing God to transform us. And so while this series we're in, called Vertigo, the disorienting stories of Jesus, isn't kind of built as a a Lent series, this past week, as I've been kind of diving into this particular story in Luke 16, the connections were really, really clear to me. Um, And this is how, I'll just sort of walk you through this just for a second, uh, because I think it's a pretty cool visual. If you're going to read Luke's gospel, if you're going to sit down this afternoon and say, I just want to read the gospel of Luke beginning to end, um, rather than watching a, there's no football on TV, so you might as well read a gospel, right, this afternoon. Um, so you do, what you would maybe notice if you just read the whole thing is in chapter 9, there's this pivot point. In Luke 9, the first eight chapters are about the disciples asking questions about Jesus, trying to figure out who is this man who called us to follow him? Who is this man who can heal the sick, who can uh, calm the storms? Who is this man who can feed the hungry? Who is this guy? In chapter 9, They recognize him for the very first time as God's Messiah, right? Peter, in in Luke 9, he says, you are God's Messiah. And it's as if in that moment, Jesus pivots from his disciples toward Jerusalem. 
And like in his very next breath, after Peter says, you are God's Messiah, you're the Savior of the world, you're the anointed one, the King of heaven and earth, he turns and he says in verse 51, it says, Jesus set out, or resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Well, why was that a big deal? What's going to happen in Jerusalem? He's going to die. So immediately in Luke chapter 9, he starts talking about his upcoming suffering and death. And and along with that, as he turns toward Jerusalem and starts moving that direction, he starts talking about the cost of following him. That there's a cost to being a disciple of Jesus. It's the greatest gift in the world, and yet it costs us everything. And and Jesus, he he starts talking about these, these difficult things. He prophesies his own upcoming suffering and death several times. And here's the deal, from Luke chapter 9 till he arrives in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, all of these stories, all of these parables are told that we're going to be looking at over the next six weeks. So it's as if we go from week to week, what we are doing is we're following Jesus on this trek to Jerusalem. We're hearing him, we're sitting at his feet as he tells these stories called parables. So we can keep that sort of image in our mind that we are with him on this journey toward Jerusalem. Now, Parables. A word about parables. Parables are not cute stories with a heavenly meaning. Like, they're not just sort of like meant to be kind of cute, entertaining stories to make a point. Parables were a teaching strategy of rabbis, these stories, meant to disrupt us. Parables were meant to disorient us. They were meant to challenge the way we see the world so that we would end up seeing the world in a new way called the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Parables, when Jesus tells a story, a parable, like we'll look at here in a minute, it's almost like you can picture him just sort of pulling the rug out from underneath of us. Because this is the way we've seen the world, and all of a sudden Jesus pulls the rug out from underneath us, and we find ourselves stumbling into this new reality called the kingdom of God. And so um, we're in this series called Vertigo, the disorienting stories of Jesus. Now, how many of you have ever had vertigo? Raise your hand if you've ever dealt with it. Anybody have like Meniere's disease? Um, <clears throat> a few people. Like, yeah, I just I, honestly, my stomach starts to turn when I think about what that must be like. Like just this, this sensation of the world is spinning out of control all the while you're just standing there, you know, in one spot. My, my brother-in-law. Uh, all my wife's family, they're, they're all into extreme water sports. So they all barefoot water, ski, wakeboard, all kinds of crazy stuff. And by the way, I have a really funny story about like my entrance into their family trying to barefoot water ski and the six weeks or six months of chiropractic care that happened afterward. I would be happy to tell you that story if you ask me after the service. Um, but her brother, one of Carmen's brothers, is being pulled behind the boat. And I think he was barefooting. He, he may have been on a wakeboard doing backflips or whatever. He's crazy like that. But whatever it was, he's behind the boat, and he crashes. And he hits the water at just the wrong way so that his ear slaps the water. If he's barefooting, he's probably going 40 miles an hour or more. His ear slaps the water, and the pressure of the water rushes into his ear and not only bursts his eardrum, but tears a hole in his cochlea. So, a little bit of an anatomy lesson. You have this system inside your ears called your vestibular system. Um, And what happens in your vestibular system is you have these 
these semicircular little canals in there that have fluid in them. So right now, as you like turn your head, everybody do this, right? Woo. Uh, you have this water that's sloshing around, this fluid sloshing around in there that helps orient you. It helps to like communicate to your body, your brain to your body, like, okay, this is what's happening. And helps you balance yourself. And you have other systems, like your muscular system is involved too, like to kind of help your body figure out what's happening so that you can keep your balance. Vertigo is what happens when there's a discrepancy between one of your systems and the rest of your systems. Does that make sense? So all of a sudden there's a discrepancy and like I feel like I'm spinning but my body says I'm standing still. And it gives us this crazy dizzy sensation. Uh, the stories of Jesus do this to us. There's all of a sudden there's a discrepancy between how I've always seen reality and how Jesus is describing reality. It disorients us for a second. Um, so my brother-in-law, as he tears a hole in his cochlea, this, some of this fluid rushes out. And he completely is, is disoriented. So he's in the water, and he, he's in the water holding perfectly still, and yet feels like the whole lake is spinning. Uh, they like have to carry him, get him into the boat, because he can't get into the boat on his own. They take him to the emergency room, set him on the examination table, and of course, like, thank you physicians for being so compassionate and loving, calls like his friends over and says, check this out, because his eyes sitting here on the examination table and his eyes are just going like this, right? I mean, and you can start to imagine, like, what that is like, horribly disorienting. Um, and that's a little bit of what the stories of Jesus do to us. So there you go. That's what's in store. Um, there, there is this sensation of, Jesus, what? Wait, wait a second. What are, you, what, are you, what are you saying? What are you doing? And it's a, it's a sensation that I've experienced this week, and now I just get to share it with you. So here we go. Uh, in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. The words aren't going to be on screen, so you can just listen, or you can follow along if you want. Story called The Rich Man and Lazarus. Now there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now the time came when the beggar died and angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus at his side. So he called out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip his, the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in the fire. But Abraham replied, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will, they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. 
wink, wink, right? So let's unpack this a little bit layer by layer because it is absolutely brilliant what Jesus is doing. He, he starts out, notice he says there was a certain rich man. The rich man does not have a name. There's this, this certain rich man. Who, who was the rich man? Who is the rich man? Could be me. Could be you. Uh, growing up, I've always read this story from the perspective of Lazarus. Like, I'm, I'm kind of Lazarus in this story. And, and we kind of have that perspective sometimes of like, I'm kind of the one who's receiving the good things Jesus is teaching about. But I think maybe the same people who heard Jesus actually tell this story would have thought the same things. So what happens if I'm the rich man? See, what Jesus does is brilliant. Is He doesn't, he doesn't give the rich man a name. He just says there was a certain rich man. In fact, the title of my sermon is Lazarus and a Certain Rich Man, but the title on top of my outline is Lazarus and Me. It says a certain rich man, um, he dressed in purple every day, purple robes, which is obviously an indictment against K-State fans. Uh, that's obvious. <laughs> so repent now. Um, yeah, come on now. He's got Pentecostal all of a sudden. Um, most people think that what Jesus was actually doing was he was confronting the religious leaders, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group of Jewish leaders who ran the temple. And the Sadducees, uh, they were some of the wealthiest people in the culture. They, um, they had noble positions. Running the temple was a very profitable business. Right? And Jesus, he would later judge the temple. The moment he stepped into Jerusalem, what does he do? Boom, tables are over. He's bringing judgment on the temple. And so a lot of people think this parable is spoken to the Sadducees who made a big deal about walking around in their flowing, you know, purple robes, these fine robes, and, and displaying how blessed by God they were. You can almost hear the Sadducees saying, God bless Israel, right? Look at us. We are blessed by God. We are blessed by God because we're wealthy. Obviously, God's blessing is on us. So Jesus says there was this man who dressed in purple every day. Purple was the most expensive form of, most expensive color. The dye was the hardest to get. So only royalty, only the richest could afford it. And he says he dressed in purple every day. And by the way, Jesus was a funny storyteller. He says, and he had linen underwear as well. You can almost hear the chuckle from the crowd as linen says. He wore purple robes, and under his robes he had linen skivvies on. Um, so there's, there's a bit of humor there. Um, he had these linen, these very expensive undergarments, just in case anybody was interested. Um, and it says he lived in luxury every day. The picture there is of a banquet that every day coming and going from this man's house are his brothers, his friends. And just, there's this constant banquet going on at this guy's house. He is living in luxury. And it says he has a gate. He has a gate. And what is the gate there for? Well, it's a barrier, isn't it? It's a barrier of insulation. It's, the gate is there for the purpose of allowing your friends in and keeping others out. Keeping riffraff out of your property. The gate was there to keep Lazarus on the other side. So he didn't have to be disturbed with him. So he didn't have to be confronted by him. So he didn't have to smell him or see him. He didn't have to ruin his party. Right, so Lazarus is outside the gate. It says here um, that outside the gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. 
verse 20, was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Apparently Lazarus couldn't walk. He was laid there. He had to have people lay him there. Um, And he was longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. But even the dogs came and licked his sores. Um, Now, what's interesting here is we don't have the rich man's name, but what name do we have? Lazarus' name. Do you know that of all the parables Jesus told, there's only one name given to any of the characters? And it's Lazarus. And Lazarus is specific. This, this, this poor, um, apparently lame, sore-covered man who's starving is given the name Lazarus in Jesus' story. And the name Lazarus means God helps. God comforts. You get this image of God seeing Lazarus. God knows Lazarus. Now, is that a cruel name for Jesus to give him in the story? How is God helping him? He's starving to death. He's covered in sores. He's humiliated as these dogs come and lick his wounds. How in the world is God helping, comforting Lazarus? It seems like a very cruel name. But Lazarus says he, um, he longed to f- be fed with the, the food that fell from the rich man's table. Now, um, just kind of a little bit about how banquets worked in first century, in Greco-Roman culture. So you have, when you picture this, this wealthy man throwing a banquet, don't picture like a dining room table, like maybe you have in your house, and don't picture like food kind of falling off the dining room table. Like in my house, if you come over, you could eat. Not that the floors are that clean, but after a meal, you could just like, you could eat a whole meal off of what our kids drop on the floor, and I do it too. Um, but don't picture that. Picture these three couches. This is how, like, very wealthy people had their homes arranged in these, this arrangement of three couches called a triclinium. And what would happen is the, the wealthiest people, the guests, would sit on these couches and recline at the table, right? They laid back. Because who doesn't want to eat their, their food in a reclined position? So when you get your bowl of ice cream and you sit on the lazy boy, like, you are just being biblical, Right? Um, just on the wrong side of the story. Um, so you imagine the rich man here, he's got his guests around, and what would happen is you would put the most prominent people, the wealthiest people, close to the center, and then everybody else was arranged according to their wealth, their status, their position, out around. So what would happen is um, you, like as you're eating this meal, the, if, has anybody like been to a Middle Eastern country and you've eaten meals there? Where, like, you have a bowl, like maybe there's a bowl of hummus, and you take bread, flatbread, and you dip it in the bowl, and that's how everybody eats, out of the same bowl, but you, the bread's the only thing that touches it. So, but maybe you make a little mess, there's some on your hands or your mouth, you take another piece of bread, and you wipe it off of your hands or off of your mouth as a napkin, and throw it on the floor. And then servants would come and clean the floor. It was a servant. There we go. And, and clean the floor. So you didn't even have to do that. And then they would gather up the scraps and they would throw them to the dogs. What does Lazarus want to be fed with? Just, just give me some of the scraps. Like just the napkins. I'll be, I'll be happy with that. But it says he was longing to eat it, which means he probably didn't get any. The dogs were probably fed before him. Um, something else that's important to understand is that the way very wealthy people's homes were arranged is that you had this open line of sight from this air dining area all the way out to the street, to the gate. 
who is laying at the gate? Lazarus. Which means as they're sitting here, who do they see? But starving Lazarus. As Lazarus is laying there, who does he see? These people with plenty, just eating, throwing food on the floor that would keep him alive. This is what Jesus is doing. He's painting this picture. Uh, But what would happen is not just anybody was allowed into this dining area. If you got invited to this, say this, this rich man in Jesus' parable, say he had thrown a massive party and invited the neighborhood. You were only allowed into certain areas based, again, on your status, your power, your wealth. So maybe you were allowed inside the gate, just inside the gate, and that's where you could hang out. Or maybe you were allowed into the, like, outer courtyard. Or maybe you had more money and you were allowed into the inner courtyard where there's, like, a fountain area. Maybe you were allowed inside, but not sitting at the, on the couches. You were uh, allowed to stand outside uh, around the couches. Or maybe you were invited to sit at the table if you were really wealthy. But all the while, every barrier, barrier you crossed was an indication of where you stood in the eyes of the host. And so Lazarus is way out there, outside the gate, And it's as if there is this great chasm that exists between the rich man and Lazarus. So that's the story Jesus is painting here. The rich man and Lazarus, they were neighbors. Lived in the same community, they breathed the same air, they occupied the same space, but they are worlds apart. Separated by walls, by barriers that keep the rich man comfortable and the poor man miserable. But then they die. And Lazarus, for him, death was probably a welcome friend. I mean, you can almost imagine him laying at the gate begging for his life to be over. On the day Lazarus died, nobody came to pray. The rabbi said some words and they chucked him in the clay. He lived a lifetime having the dogs lick his wounds. And on the day he lost his life, that's all he had to lose. It's a little Leonard Skinner for you there. But the death of the rich man was a tragedy. He had a funeral. He had a burial. He was probably put in an expensive tomb. Maybe the community mourned his death. Maybe they, you know, had a celebration. We don't know. But death, in the story Jesus tells, is like this looking glass. This window that we can look through to see reality. As God sees it. Death gives this picture of not this reality the way the rich have constructed it, but the reality the way God sees it. And so Jesus, he says, death brings this reversal, this absolute reversal of who's in and who's out. In verse 22, it says, A time came when this beggar died, and the angels carry him to Abraham's side. Now, what was Jesus saying here? Like, Heaven is always pictured as this banquet. And you have, like, you imagine these angels carrying Lazarus to whose side? To Abraham's side. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus says, Many will come from the east and the west, and they will take their places at the feast in heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where does Lazarus go but to this feast in heaven beside Abraham? At the place of honor. This is a beautiful picture of this. He is, in fact, the one God comforts and sees and helps. What happens to the rich man? For the first time in his life, where is he? But outside the gates, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
I mean, for the first time in his life, he's on the outside looking in. And he's tormented. And you can imagine him there sort of looking at Lazarus, sitting at Abraham's side. And you imagine, like, what's going through his mind right now? Like, as he's, as he's disoriented in the flames of Hades, he calls out and he says, Father Abraham. Hey, by the way, Abraham, remember I'm a Jew. I'm one of the good guys. I have the right race. I'm a descendant of Abraham. Father Abraham, have pity on me. Like this man is, is tormented in the flames of Hades and he says, have pity on me. Now imagine Jesus telling the story. What do you expect him to say next? I'm such a fool. Like, have pity on me, Father Abraham. Like, I'm so sorry I wasn't compassionate on Lazarus. I had no idea that you loved him this much. I had no idea that you saw him. No idea that you cared this much about him. Forgive me for my lack of compassion, Abraham. Please have pity on me. That's what you expect him to say, right? But what does he say? Tell that servant boy to serve me. Dip his finger in the water and send him here to comfort me because I'm the one in agony. This rich man that Jesus paints in the story, even in the flames of hell, is not capable of repentance. He's not capable of seeing a world where he's not the one who is at the center of the party and, and Lazarus is below him on the social status. He's painting a picture of a man whose, hearts are so, a man whose heart is so hardened by, by his wealth and he's so um, closed off by his life of comfort that he cannot see reality. It's this incredible sort of paradox and this judgment on this man. And so he, he calls out and he asks Abraham to send Lazarus, but Abraham calls back and says, um, son, hey son, remember that in your lifetime you received a lot of good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted and you're in agony. Notice that Abraham, what he says to the man is he doesn't say, hey, in your life you earned a lot of good things. In your life, son, you worked hard and you got what you deserved. You pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. You, I mean, good job. What does he say? He says, in your life you received. What's Jesus doing here? He's saying everything we have is a gift. Remember Psalm 24 verse 1 that says, um, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. It's all a gift. Everything we've had, no matter how hard we've worked or what has happened, it's all a gift. The land belongs to God. This land is, in fact, not your land. It's not my land. It is God's land. And everything we have is a gift. But this man refused to see that. He, he refused to not be entitled. He refused to open his hands and to share as God would have him. Um, so he received these good things, but now Lazarus is receiving comfort. Then in verse 27, he says, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus. Send, send the beggar boy on an errand. Please, like, let him raise from the dead and go back, because I have five brothers. And, and let him warn them so that they won't come to this place of torment as well. But Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. You see, um, Moses and the prophets... Moses was known for writing the first five books of the Bible, right? The Torah. And with one voice, the Torah calls out to us to say, remember the poor. 
Remember Deuteronomy? Book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 24 says this. Um, it says, hey, it, when you come in, this is a paraphrase, by the way, it doesn't actually say hey. Um, when you come into the land that I'm giving you, and all of a sudden you've received a lot of good things from me, this is what God says, um, don't forget the poor. Don't abuse your workers. Don't, um, don't deprive the poor, the foreigner, the alien residing among you of justice. Because do you know what's going to happen? If you do, if you mistreat them and they cry out to me, remember that I'm the God who hears and who sees. I'm the God who heard and saw you when you were living in Egypt, and I will hear and I will see them and I will bring judgment on you. That's what the Torah says. Remember the poor. Serve them, love them, see them, hear their cries. Uh, what do the prophets say? Well, it's pretty simple. What does what the prophets say? Hey, what does God require of you? What does he want from you? It's not lots of sacrifice. It's not like great worship services. What does God want? He wants you to do justice, to love mercy, and to just walk humbly with God. See, this rich man and his five brothers, they were Jewish. They were sons of Abraham. They would have gone to synagogue. They would have gone to school. They would have learned the, the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets. They would have read Isaiah 58. And in Isaiah 58, what does God do? He, he says, hey, you guys are so religious, but your religion is worthless because you fast. And like on the day of your fasting, you like... You humble and you cry out to me like you really want to know what I have to say. But on the same day you fast, you, you, you don't pay your workers. Like on the same day that you fast, you, you exploit the poor. You end up fighting with your neighbors and there's violence in your home. Like, no, this is worthless to me, God says. The kind of fasting I want is to, to loosen the chains of injustice. To untie the, the cords of the yoke, to, to undo the yoke of oppression, to spend yourself on behalf of the poor, to clothe the naked, to, to share your food with the hungry. This is what I want of you. With one voice, the law and the prophets, they speak about things that we all know that God wants from us. You see, the kingdom of God isn't a miss. It's not hard to understand. My kids understand it. When I read this story to my kids, do you know what they instinctively know to be true? Better than me? What does God want from this rich man? He wants him to see Lazarus. He wants him to go outside the gate. He wants him to share his food. He wants him to care for him. That's what God wants. It doesn't take a Bible scholar to figure that out. And yet, sometimes what happens, and I think what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders and what he might be saying to us is, is sometimes we pass over the simple truth the simple acts of obedience that connect us with our neighbors, that help us to see them, to love them, to move toward them. And we fool ourselves into disobedience. We fool ourselves into thinking, you know what, if I just learned more about who really are the poor among us, then I, I could do something about it. If we just had like a six-week Bible study on who really are the poor, because aren't we all in fact poor? I mean, honestly. I mean, we have an incredible ability to deceive ourselves. We compare ourselves. I've never met a rich person in my life, right? Because, because we always compare ourselves. I'm poor. If I compare myself to the Koch brothers, I'm, I'm Lazarus. It's me. People should help me. I'm hungry. I get hungry all the time. I get hangry. I'm hangry right now, <laughs> right? 
Um, who are the naked? Well, Lazarus, he's not naked. He actually has a cloth. You know, he's not naked. Surely God doesn't mean him. And we fool ourselves into thinking that maybe if I just learned some more, maybe if I just sort of studied this more, then I could be faithful. You know what? Like maybe the rich man was praying, God, just put a burden on my heart for Lazarus. He knew his name, by the way. Did you know that? He, he saw him and he recognized it. It wasn't like he didn't know he was there. He knew his name, Lazarus. See, there's Lazarus beside Abraham. Maybe the rich man was praying, God, just if you want me to help Lazarus, just, ma- just make it obvious to me. Sorry, Lazarus. God doesn't have to put a burden on our heart for things he's very clearly asked us to do. To just, to just open our hands to see those who are hurting, to love them, to share, to have compassion. So Jesus says, uh, in, in, through Abraham in this story, he says, hey, if they don't listen to the law and the prophets, to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen even if somebody's raised from the dead. And it's true, isn't it? The religious leaders, what happens when Jesus is raised from the dead? They make up a story about it. They know the tomb is empty as well as anybody. And what do they do? They say, well, uh, let's tell everybody the disciples took him. Even the truth of God standing in front of them, even the truth of the resurrection won't be able to convince their hearts that God is moving here and the kingdom of God is in their midst. What happens to us when we systematically, day after day, refuse the simple steps of obedience that God is asking us to do, what happens is all of a sudden our hearts become so hardened that even if God were to appear to us, we couldn't accept the truth of it. What happens when we refuse the light day after day after day is we can no longer recognize the light and we become blind. And this is a warning to us. It's a warning to us uh, to, to say um, we, we can fool ourselves out of just these simple acts of obedience to what God is asking us to do, to, to care for those around us, to see them. First John says, says this very same thing. It says, if we claim to have fellowship with God, if we claim to have fellowship with God, and yet we do what? We walk in darkness. We fool ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. But God, um, here's what, I go to church every Sunday, or most Sundays. And, uh, you know, I worship, I give some money, I serve, I endure sermons. Um, I do, I do all this stuff. Everybody else laughed in second and first and second service. Apparently that's not a joke to you. Um, that's okay. You know, I do all this stuff, God. Um, isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? You know what God, I think, would say to us? No. No, it's actually not. It's not what I'm asking of you. It's good. Keep doing it. But when you leave, I, I want you to see the people around you. I want you to see those people who you have insulated yourself from. I want you to see those people who are in your own community, who are your neighbors, who are breathing your air And, and you figured out a way to never see them, to drive around those parts of town, to sort of block them out through your gates, your walls, your barriers of insulation. I want you to find them, and I want you to spend yourself for them. I want you to act on their behalf. I want you to move close to them. I want you to hear their stories. I want you to, to give, to pour yourself out. I want you to act in, in, 
unbelievably generous ways toward them. And when you do, God says, when you do that for Lazarus in your midst, for one of the least of these, you're doing it for me. This is what Jesus says. If you want to relate to God, this is how you relate to God. And, and if, if this whole thing we're doing as, as a church, if this thing we're doing as, as what we think it means to be a Christian is to sort of have a ticket punched for heaven, like God is some sort of divine stub hub, right? He's going to give us a ticket for heaven. That's what Jesus is to us. Then, then we can actually sort of forget about the ticket. Because that's not what Jesus is offering us. He's offering us eternal life. He's offering us life with God. And it doesn't just start after we die. It begins now, the moment we surrender to Jesus and we step into his reality called the kingdom of God. Jesus is holding it out to us. And, and there is a warning in this parable that says if we don't act on it, if we don't take a step toward Jesus, th- there may come a day when we can't hear the truth anymore. And so what does this speak to us today? What is, what, what, what are the gates that you've put up in your life to just keep you from those uncomfortable people? To keep you uh, away from, from things that are going to sort of cramp your style, dance, party. And how might God want you to cross those barriers, to, to bring them down, to see, to hear? Can you see, can you hear the cries of the hurting? The closer we are to God's heart, the more we see and hear. Are there ways that you have a sense of entitlement? God, this is mine. I earned it. I worked for it. And, and the invitation of God today is to say it's, you've, it's a gift and you've received it. So here's what I want you to do. Is I want you to open your hands again. I want you to share it. God, we are confronted by just the truth of who you are and of your kingdom. And God, I admit these words are hard. And yet they're also freeing. God, because we know um, that the rich man and Lazarus need each other. And the rich man needs Lazarus as much as Lazarus needs him. And God, those of us who live in this world, who experience more comfort and more luxury than any culture in any time at any point in history, God, we hear this parable. We, we want to hear ourselves in it. And God, we want to be the kind of people who live in the kingdom of God who are moved with compassion, who see and who hear, and who step toward those around us who are hurting and in need. God, if there are invisible people like Lazarus at our doorstep, and and maybe we've never seen them, God, open our eyes to them. God, they are the ones that you see and you hear and you comfort. So God, we want to partner with you in your work in the world. Got to open our hands as we open our hands to you. In Jesus' name, amen.